This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Got some exciting news here. This is Raoul Pell, the host of your podcast. I'm actually building a brand new podcast for you all, which I think is really going to be something very special. It's called Raoul Pal the Journeyman. And it really is my journey at the nexus of kind of macro investing and finance, technology, crypto, and who knows, maybe we'll do some wellness and other interesting stuff too. But it's my journey for me, and I want to bring you all along with me. So we're actually going to deactivate this podcast channel, and I urge you to come across to try out Raoul Pal the Journeyman. You click on the link below and make sure when you do, you subscribe so you don't miss out any of these incredible conversations. See you there. There we are. Hello, everybody. This is my, my dear buddy. I'm a big fan of Ralpa for the longest time. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. We haven't done this since 2021, can you believe? I, I know. And then people on Twitter said, you guys haven't got together for ages. I'm like, well, let's sort it out. So yeah, here we are. Really appreciate your time. We're going to go through literally everything. I think I called this decoding the everything code with you because, uh, you know, I, I've been a big fan of the work you've been doing for a long time. Uh, by the way, everybody, Real Vision links and everything else you need to follow, et cetera, are down below. Uh, a wealth of information. And you guys have come an awful long way. In fact, isn't it fair to say you have reinvented Real vision over the last year during the bear. Yeah. And then what's about to come yep. is even bigger as we're building out an entire platform that launches to members in August. There's AI from AI to guide you through content to help you with stuff to our own large language model to charting tools, analytics, portfolio tool. I mean, it's all coming. So yeah. it's, it's a huge change. And you're looking at one of your Real Vision Pro members here for a long time, too. By the yeah, way... There are a lot of goodies in Real Vision Pro, trust me. Yeah. It's going to be and, great. And things have changed an awful lot uh, since we last spoke. In fact, things have changed an awful lot since November. So before we jump into crypto, Bitcoin, alts, disruptive stocks, macro, Fed, BlackRock, uh, long journey, you know, all the other good stuff... Um, since November 2022, AI has literally changed everything. And you and I both lived through the dot-com bust where the internet was supposed to be the promise to change the world. But how do you view AI? Because AI, not only has it hit us over the back of the head like a brick, but it's also real out of the gate. It's not the internet's going to change everything over the next five years. It's from day one, it is a radical change. How do you view AI and how is that impacting your world and your investments? So I think AI, these large language models and where we are today is the, one of the largest, if not the largest technological breakthroughs of mankind after the splitting of the atom. It's of that order of magnitude. And why I say that without hubris is all technology up until today, or up until let's say November, 2022, I mean, it's not the exact date, but let's assume that 
was all about augmenting humans physically, you know, robots, the, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, it's all of that, getting more productivity out of humans in a physical sense. Yep. This took the one thing that humans had that was scarce, which was intelligence, and has made it abundant, in fact, infinite. So you've scaled knowledge and intelligence infinitely. We don't even know what that means. It's so profound. Exactly. It's a complete and utter change in how humans act. And people are going to be watching this going, oh, God, these guys are talking crack. You know, it's just, you know, the, you know, it's only a chat GPT model. It's like, look at the speed of stuff like Midjourney that does the photographic side of stuff. It was literally six months ago where it could barely make a human shape after a prompt. Now it's got photorealistic images from a word prompt. We will have photo, well, we'll have video realistic word to video prompts. It'll be six months time. Yeah. And the speed at which these models are learning is gigantic. So I think it changes everything in everything that we work, everything how we operate. At first it becomes a tool, then it becomes something much bigger. But right now we're in that tool phase where you can't ignore it. So you might as well start using it. Yep. And you'll figure out faster ways of doing things and better ways of doing things. You know, we're going to jump straight into the nitty gritty. One of the things that I've been very concerned about, obviously, you know, a big part of my life is trading. And uh, we've seen advents of different technology come through the trading investment world for a long time, bots, algos, etc. But now I, I have this terrible, scary fear that within, say, the next three years on the inside, maybe five years on the outside, the AI will completely transform how excess returns are made in the stock market, especially for traders, etc. You still might be able to get in on certain stocks early, disruption early, and beat the machines. But when it comes to trading per se, do you see that whole excess return world being wiped? And now is the opportunity, it's our last window to kind of make it so for the next three years, or am I just a little bit doomsday-ish? I don't know. All I know is as high frequency trading um, and model based, quant based trading got introduced into markets, it became less easy yeah. for people. And so they, but what they tended to use was high, hyper short term time frequencies. So these kind of day trader models, that, that really doesn't work versus the machines as well. We might delude ourselves to think that it does. I think still the longer term time horizon. The stuff that you and I often focus on as well. Um, that I think we have an advantage because the future becomes much more probabilistic and less certain. But the problem is, is the rise of these models means they can think into the future too. I mean, if it can beat every single person in the game of Go, hmm. why can't it be better at predicting future outcomes from markets and then adjusting in real time as they get new information? What does that mean for the rest of us? How do we invest? Or does just trend following work? But then maybe that gets arbitrage. I don't know. I don't know. You don't, it's, but it's, not, yeah, it's not keeping it's, you awake at night, which is good. <laughs> no, it's not. Because like you, I think we've got a gigantic opportunity in front of us from an investment perspective. Um, and I think the answer is not to fuck it up. <laughs> you give me a little bit of hope, which is great. Uh, okay, so the other thing that is a huge concern, especially, so I, I always try and, 
you know, think ahead the next five, ten years and plan long term and anticipate what could go wrong, etc. A lot of people, um, including myself, and I've been concerned about this for a long time, believe AI could destroy 50% of jobs and also impact the spending power of the workforce. You know, you, you hear stories of, you know, average coders becoming top coders. You've got, here are the stories of, say, developers that typically, um, it would take three of them to do a job. Now one can do it because of you know, copywriters. So many industries are being absolutely disrupted all across the board. There is no, there is no safe haven, whether you are a lawyer or a medical physician or whatever else. How do you believe this could impact the world, impact people, spending power, retirement plans the next decade, and how should people prepare? So the answer to a lot of this is we don't know. We can't know. Yes, it will replace a lot of jobs, but can we find other jobs? Is there a chance that humanity reorganizes itself in different ways? You know, we've seen the rise of Web3. Could community-based um, opportunities be something that the robots don't do as well? The answer is, is I don't know. It's going to change pro probably productivity. Don't forget, most of the Western world has this big baby boom bulge that are all in their 70s and 80s now. And they'll eventually, um, sadly, die out die off and we're going to be left with that economic growth slows down because of this aging population and productivity has been declining because an 80 year old is less productive than a 20 year old so ai has a chance to change the balance and keep gdp higher as we start to see population declines in most countries so i think it helps us increase productivity which increases economic growth and offsets the aging population so I think it's a net good thing. All of this exponential age technology is a net good thing for humanity. But it's going to create a ginormous reorganization. I mean, like you and I remember when they closed the car plants in England and the steel mills in Sheffield and the coal mines, all of that stuff. right? And a long part of our upbringing was those people still out of a job. The, you know, that frictional unemployment that just never changed. But eventually, people reorganize into different opportunities. Um, so I think we will find different opportunities. What does AI offer us as an opportunity that we didn't have before? Again, we don't really know. We don't really even know the power of this thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think it's, at first, very disruptive for jobs. But I think the backside of this is, and I'm talking now, you know, five, six years hence, we start to see growth finally changing the yeah. trajectory of growth, which helps us pay off our debts and, and the things that we actually need for society to move on. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. In fact, you opened up a, a little second double click into question in, in your response to that. And that was the change in, in demographics, etc. If you take place like the United States and place in England, a lot of, say, real estate and assets and wealth are held by those people that are looking to downsize or, you know, other things, heaven forbid. That's going to result in a glut of certain type of assets being handed down or being made available for sale. 
Have you thought about that? Because it's happening all over the world at the same time, kind of the boomer generation you hit on. Um, and and how, how can that affect? So I, I do have this theory that, you know, imagine you are, say, 28 years of age and you inherit a million dollars from parents or grandpa or whatever. You're, you're not going to buy gold. You're not going to buy stocks. You're probably going to just backpack around the world and, you know, couch surf. So what are you going to buy? Uh, I think you probably need an idea, but that's going to cause about a huge amount of disruption. And that dovetails nicely into what BlackRock maybe is trying to do now as well. So how do you see all that playing out? Yeah. So I've thought about this for a long time and I did my retirement crisis video about this. And it's worried about what happens to those assets versus what young people buy. It kind of changed over the pandemic because young people left the cities and moved to these kind of suburban or rural places where the property on offer was cheaper. And that's a lot of that was the baby boomer properties. So I think that's, that's interesting dynamic that I didn't really expect to happen. Um, And I don't think it's going to reverse massively yet. So I think there's a chance. But the probability of house prices going up in real terms adjusted for the debasement, something we'll talk about in a bit, is pretty low. Um, in in nominal terms, it'll look like it keeps going up because yeah. of the Fed printing new currency. Um, this equity portfolio is the other side of that equation. They, they own all the equities. They've got to sell that. We've seen that transition in Europe and we had an equity market that went nowhere for years. Now, again, adjusted for debasement, the Fed printing or the global central bank printing, the S&P has gone nowhere since 2008. Correct which actually looks just like the European stock market. So there's a lot of dynamics at play. It's a bit more complicated, but do you, as a 28-year-old, get richer in real terms by owning these assets? I.e., can you buy more consumption later? And the answer is probably no. Hmm. So you are going to have to face with the ugly truth is, I need to find assets that grow, not just optically, like the Venezuelan stock market goes up a lot, (laughs) <laughs> but because the currency goes down a lot. Yeah. So how do you make those how do you make that wealth grow so your future self thanks you for the decisions you've made? And I can only come down to two asset classes to create those kind of returns because these things outperform the debasement because they're driven by adoption of technologies. So that's what I call the exponential age, which is the technology interplay between everything from AI, robotics, EV um whether you want to put in other forms of new energy sources um genetic sciences internet of things space i mean there's there's a lot of things all happening at the same time which is why we're all kind of spinning to catch up and the other side is crypto which is actually part of the exponential age as well which is a new financial system and, and an internet system of value for the digital world those things have big adoption trends we saw that ai was the fastest adoption of any technology even more so than crypto. Crypto was the fastest adoption of any technology beforehand. AI dwarfed it in speed. I mean, it got to 100 million users in five weeks. Um, So those are the opportunities. And it's not like saying, well, you can own NVIDIA forever. It'll be a changing rotation of themes within the overall broader theme. But if somebody's 28 years old now and they've got their million bucks, it depends what they want to do with their life. They can either spend it on experiences, which are massively valued, valuable as you say go backpacking around the world do whatever you want 
or you need to stick it in some asset that actually grows. Because if not, you're going to make no net progress. Exactly. I always tell people, you know, imagine you're treading water. So your returns on the S&P 500 will help you stay afloat. That's about it. <laughs> but if you want to get it. ahead, you need to be making more than 14% per year. And that's kind of from the Saifedina Moose global fiat debasement numbers. Half-life of money is 10.4 years. Whichever way you cut it, that's just the math behind it. So I'm glad you picked up on that. I love the way that you divide empty money supply growth. You know, your indices divided by that. That's your denominator. Which it's is really cool. interesting because when you do it, once I just started developing this framework for myself, I divided the S and P five hundred since two thousand eight when money printing came, and it and it's barely risen. Yeah. Um, real estate negative, but we can use leverage in real estate, so maybe it's not quite correct. Um, but still, it's not been great. Um, gold negative, um, and then you look at crypto has obviously been ridiculous, and the Nasdaq's done very well. And, I, and it's just a really interesting framework to use. Yeah. And speaking of crypto, it's time to switch gears to the elephant in the room. So we had our number one detractor flipped into the number one cheerleader. His name is Larry Fink. And uh, it's quite stunning what he said on Fox News yesterday. He said, I think words to the fact of Bitcoin can represent an alternative, an international asset akin to digital gold or digitized gold or whatever the word he used. That was very profound coming from the money man, biggest money man on earth, you know, with what, 10 trillion AUM under BlackRock, etc. And he talked about the use of Bitcoin kind of like for from a transaction layer perspective. He spoke about working closely with the SEC. Obviously, he has the SEC in his back pocket, I believe. I think many people do as well. And he was very humble. He said, I was initially very skeptical, but that has all changed. Now, this is a democratizing force. I was like, I was like who is this guy? So did, that, did, did you pick up on any of that? Did that blow you away yesterday? Yeah, but I do remember back in 2021, he was on CNBC mm. and he started talking about when they put some stuff on Bitcoin onto the BlackRock website and they had a record number of hits on the website. Yeah. He's like, right. I paid attention that people want this as a product. Yeah. And it was just him talking about it that got it. So I think he's been across the line for a while. And I think they've been waiting for both the right regulatory environment and um, the right time in the market. Hmm. And we, we're, you know, Bitcoin's up, what, 100% from the low. It's starting to feel like people are starting to understand that, the, you know, we're likely in a bull market again. And so therefore they've rolled it out. I mean, from my conversations with most of these institutions is they've all been working on it. They all know it's coming, but it's waiting for the SEC to say what they can do. And I think the trade-off here is Gens is like, I need a political break here yeah. because he's getting destroyed by stopping all innovation in the United States yes. and, and stopping opportunity to investors, which I think is disgraceful. Um, so I think he's thought, okay, well, I've said Bitcoin is okay. So why don't I just get that across the line? Yeah. Um, so then, look, everybody lined up to do this, which is fine for all of us because it will just bring fresh capital into the digital economy. Yeah. And that will get disseminated across the digital economy into different places. And, you know, that will invigorate the cycle. But, yeah, most of these people, even Jamie Dimon, they've got a huge group of people working on blockchain technologies um, at JP Morgan. Goldman Sachs do, Apollo do. I mean, they've all got it. So they're just waiting, just waiting and waiting. 
Yeah, it's funny. U.S. is the land of the free. You can walk into a supermarket and buy an automatic weapon, but you're not allowed to touch crypto. It's kind of, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sound politically correct as a winning strategy, especially for the upcoming elections. If you are not associated with, you know, innovation and growth, you're writing your ticket off, correct? Yeah. And how can the U.S. justify this when you have Vegas? Yeah. You know, anybody can go and do anything there. You can put your entire paycheck in at whatever age, at 18 or 21, whatever you're allowed. Do whatever the hell you want. But, oh, my God, should you decide you want to invest in a technology that might be disruptive? No, no, you can't do that. And the reason being is it's all about gatekeepers. Yeah, It's exactly. the gatekeepers between you and I and the opportunity. They don't want you to get directly to the opportunity. And crypto is about democratizing that opportunity. They want their share. Yep. And here's Larry getting his share of the same pie, right? None of us need to go to Larry Fink to get our Bitcoin. You know, we just buy an exchange and stick it in your ledger device. But um, he's going to get everybody else to come through his vehicle. Well, that was the profound word or term, a democratizing force. You know, he's very tight with the US government and everything else. And to be inserting that he doesn't say words without thinking about them for like months ahead of time so i thought that was very profound you, you did because make- i think he's also pit- picking up on a political or societal message he's seeing what's going on he can see that blackrock is like out of touch with the ordinary person you know, blackrock's 10 trillion is that baby boomer wealth we've talked about mm-hmm. and really they need to change to attract the younger investors. I mean, that's a that's a truism I know that these asset managers have. A big problem is how the hell do we attract these people? You're going to have to give them products that they want, not what products that you want to sell them. Yeah. There's another interesting dimension to it. I'm trying to mesh all of these different points together and bounce them off you and see what you think. First of all, um, I, I called the late October, early November the most hated rally because a lot of people weren't on the train. And still, there's a lot of people not on the train. And I loved your term. You talked about uh, monkeys throwing poop <laughs> at each other. And it, it's it's so correct. It, it's unbelievable because you have now newcomers coming into crypto that are buying it for the first time. You've got the incumbents stayed off the train and they are wishing things to go down. you got this weird bifurcation. And then you have the timing of BlackRock coming in. Now, I do you think all of this, like especially the timing of the big money, the institution money coming in, that have been stacking hard since the beginning of the year, they know the halving is less than 300 days away. They know what that means when the supply is cut in half and the demand remains the same, price goes up. Do you think the timing of BlackRock and the institutions is random or actually planned and they have a roadmap to having their spot etf and other on-ramps for their institutional clients before the actual having um my guess is there's there's some people who work in those institutions who who know about the crypto cycle and might say hey listen if we're going to get a product out get it ahead of all the big demand let's get it through the uh, sec you know because the the halving comes in 2024 and as you know I think the halving is coincidental also with the um, the global government debt cycles, which is like a three and a half year, four year cycle, which came after every single central bank on earth reset interest rates in 2008 to zero. 
So everybody kind of issued three to five year debt. They have to roll it. Um, and that's what keeps driving the balance sheet. That happens to be exactly the same time the Bitcoin came out. So they're all on the same merry cycle together. So yes, I'm sure that they're aware of, of when you want to get product ready for market. Because it's, you know, a, a lot of products. I mean, I even started an asset management firm, which is a crypto fund of funds. But by the time we got our shit together, we launched it at the peak of the markets. You have to go through the downside and then back up through the other side. Um, so yeah, if any, anybody who launches stuff now, it's, it's perfect timing. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. And then we'll be right back. And it's also a tiny asset. Like I calculated way back, back in last year, that just $50 billion deployed into Bitcoin would exhaust the entire supply that's available on exchanges. And you know, this, this, those hard-handed people, the diamond hands, whatever, that aren't letting it go till it hits a certain threshold. So uh, how do you think BlackRock, etc., are doing the calculus of how scarce this thing is and how little there is of it? And they've got so much money at their fingertips, like half of 1% of an allocation. If they go to one of their big, big, whatever, their 10,000 sales guys and say, hey, you know, we suggest a half percent allocation to Bitcoin. That's it. Within six months, it's gone. Uh, how, how are they thinking about that? Um, well, liquidity over time grows because the number of active users and the number of applications. So... I think it's not, I don't think of it as a fixed state thing. You know, you're a Tesla guy, the liquidity in Tesla seven years ago is not the same as liquidity today, right? You can probably swing around a billion dollars in Tesla now. A billion dollars back then was a big deal. So I think we need to be wary of that. But for the rest of us, you know, there's not much supply around and a big whale's come in, which is, you know, it's not BlackRock themselves. They're not really buying stuff. Yes, they have to have a float. But what they're doing is enabling access to all of these RAAs, asset managers, pension funds. And that little door is going to move, is going to create big waves for us when that whale comes jumping into the sea. So, you know, it's great and it will create huge problems. I'm, I'm actually even more concerned by ETH because of ETH burning. Mm. I mean, it's been deflationary as a network for, for quite a while now. Yes. And that's not much of a bull market. What the hell happens if we have a full bull market and we're still moving people to become stakers? So if like 30% of the network staked and we start going to one of these crazy bull markets, there's just no ETH around because it's well, that's, negative. That's a, yeah, <laughs> we're switching gears to ETH. That's the crazy ETH conundrum because the more it gets adopted, each time somebody floats a meme coin, it spikes usage, it spikes gas fees, and it spikes burning. It's like... It's a perfect storm, but it just it also illustrates how uh, it's just not ready for prime time yet. It's not ready for global adoption. It just can't scale for that. And I think Vitalik was very, I kind of like that guy because he's very honest and open. Mm. And he's not afraid of sharing his dirty laundry in public and saying, we got issues. If we don't solve these three things, I can't remember what they were a few weeks ago. We have a serious problem. Um, and I think the way he's also reached out to people like Anatoly and everything else, I think it's been really stand up of him. But yeah, yeah the whole he, thing he's, is just a good, he's just a good thought leader. He's balanced. And, you know, don't forget, ETH has now got layer twos and that alleviates a lot of the issue, etc. And he's been driving that forwards. But yes, how we dealt with Anatoly was, I thought, 
really good all the way through. It's like, yeah. you know, these guys are good guys. We want to encourage them. We're all in this together, uh, which is just nice. Well, before we flip over to all, so I just want to wrap up the conversation because the number one question on people's minds that they probably have for you is, okay, BlackRock's coming in. They're the big bad villain. We want to keep this a cypherpunk thing and not have Wall Street BlackRock coming in. Overall, I think, you know, it really rises the tide, which rises all boats. It's a good thing for the space and it'll drive more adoption. But a lot of people are afraid that, oh, BlackRock's going to come in. They're going to manipulate like the gold market and the price will never go up. What do you say to that? Well, you, you don't manipulate an ETF. Yep. Um, you know, it's not like they're running a fund themselves and they're evil manipulators. What happens is, is when you've got a lot more players in the market, it becomes much less volatile because you've got people buying and selling all day in different ways, and many different types of investments move markets in different ways. So I, it's a shame that people didn't or won't yet use the decentralized rails of doing this themselves. And you've gone to the middleman and given Wall Street some of your cash again. But I also understand that if you are a RAA in Omaha and you quite like this idea, you can't get your customers to invest via direct holdings of Bitcoin. So it's a conundrum. And as you say, it's good for the space because it's going to bring new capital into the space. That'll bring new innovation. That'll bring more VC money. That'll bring, you know, good for our bags. It's, you know, overall good. Yeah. But they're doing it in the old fashioned way, which is bad so i get it it's not, it's what, not are, you, are you concerned about the paper market you know the the gold paper market is 130 times the actual size of the spot market uh, well pretty uh, much every market every derivative market is larger than the underlying right that's leverage it's what humans do they love it as you know between sex and leverage they're the two most fam favorite things of humans so booze, booze doesn't um, figure sorry <laughs> i thought there was booze as well is the three yeah. Maybe, yeah. but, but but leverage is everywhere. So leverage amplifies everything as well. Hmm. But you know, most markets have a lot of leverage, the FX market, for example, but there's a lot of buyers and sellers. There's, there's different people, different time horizons. And what you end up with is less volatile markets. And you know, there will be a nice day. Right now, we, we like the volatility of crypto. So we can buy it when it's low and you get the huge run ups. But it'd be nice if the market actually just kind of trended upwards, you know, 20% a year or 30% a year, as opposed to doing it in the boom bust fashion, wiping everybody out. So I think the lack of, I think volatility will come down over time from all of this, which is, I think, a good thing. Yeah. And but the opportunity goes down. Yeah. And I still go back to the scarcity of this thing. And I've done analysis in 2017 about the number of lost coins, you know, between Satoshi lockup and lost coins, over four, five million will never see the light of day again, then you have issues like people losing their coins in a perpetual basis. I'm on the receiving end of a lot of that. I see people sending Bitcoin to the wrong address or losing their keys or all sorts of terrible things are happening. It's, it's very, very fragile. But again, uh, do you think uh, Bitcoin can stay ahead of Ethereum? There used to be a lot of talk about Ethereum flipping Bitcoin. You did hint at that you're concerned about it. But because of the scarcity of Bitcoin, that could keep it pacing ahead of Ethereum. Or if you look at things like Metcalf's law, et cetera, et cetera, you analyze all the utility, it's pretty clear Ethereum will flip Bitcoin. But what's your take on that? But firstly, 
to people who are just in the crypto space, it doesn't matter. They're both going up, right? So that's the most important thing to note. So you can back any horse you want. What we're in the game for is the excess returns. Where can you generate the higher return? So when I look at Bitcoin, it's discussed in the purity of what they're doing. But now we're building ordinals and other things on top of the network and layer twos and stuff. Okay, more use cases, good for Metcalf's law, good for on-chain activity. ETH is much broader, much more dominant in that broader world. Um, and so when I look at that and think of the ETH staking, the yields, what institutions like about this as well, what kind of people get involved? I mean, everything seems to be more ETH-based. And again, that's not a diss on Bitcoin, this ridiculous tribalism online. And I just look at the long-term ETH-Bitcoin cross on TradingView, and it looks like it's a giant kind of wedge pattern. And I look at that, and that's the kind of, you know, with all price history on a log chart. And I'm like, I just reckon that this I've, these patterns usually break up as a continuation pattern, and that would say ETH massively outperforms. If we also know that ETH becomes scarcer every time it's used right now, then it's most likely to outperform. What was really interesting is we've just gone through a big bear market. Normally, everything gets nuked versus Bitcoin. ETH didn't. Traded sideways. So if that's not a big tell, so if it stays the same as Bitcoin in a down market, what's it going to do in a bull market? So... So that's my my hunch is that it outperforms. My hunch that at this in this cycle it'll do the flippening, and then it'll probably come back again. And everyone goes, "See, it was ridiculous. You know, it was a bubble. It's just." But over time, it's it's a faster growing network. Simple as that. And you and I have watched the bond market for thirty years plus now at this stage. Uh, there's the global bond route happening. Bonds are in the toilet. Yields are on fire. You know, it's caused part of a banking crisis. I think there's a lot more shoes to fall. And I'm going off on this tangent, but I'm coming back to ETH. Uh, like Japan is a mess. EU is a mess. UK guild market is a mess. US, I, I think the Fed are trying to torch the economy on purpose to get it ready for a change in regime. I don't know. It's just something they're going way too far and they're way too late. But do you believe... ETH could replace the bond market, considering it has yield, etc. And it's probably a lot safer, and it's an asset that's going up. Well, like, imagine the only, what happened then. Yeah, the only issue is it's obviously very volatile. So mm-hmm. there's that you need to trade off against it. But as a digital bond, it's pretty bloody good. If you're used to the volatility of the space, you can stake your ETH, get a yield. You can either do it through a financial counterparty, much like we can do by getting interest from a bank, which would be DeFi World or CeFi World, or you can stake yourself and take the yield yourself, which is like going to Treasury Direct in the United States and owning Treasury bonds. So in the digital world, yeah, it is the Treasury bond. Does it replace Treasury bonds? Well, it depends on your time horizon for investing. If you are an endowment with a 100-year time horizon, what would you rather own, a US Treasury bond that yields 5%? or ETH that yields 5% and gives you the potential for the technology. Now, sure, you won't weight them the same, but it's got to be very, very interesting to have such a long duration asset with a 5% dividend yield or a 5% yield. Yep, definitely. So let's let's switch gears to crypto. Um, I use this analogy. It's very crude. Sometimes I try and explain, you know, how to determine the value of a layer one or a layer two. And I use this shopping mall analogy. 
Okay, so the blockchain is the shopping mall. Uh, the dApps are the stores within the mall. And the users drive the use of the dApps, which drive up the use of the currency, which drives up the price of the token. Is that too crude an analogy right now? Because when I analyze uh, layer ones, layer twos, I look at the breadth of dApps and I look at the adoption, the cross-pollination between assets and, you know, really making people comfortable in the ecosystem so they can go one place and kind of one store that has everything they need, whether it's NFTs and DeFi and maybe some social stuff, maybe some gaming, you know, everything. So how do you view L1s, L2s, and does that shopping mall analogy resonate with you, or is it too? Clear? Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good as an analogy. And if you could own a share of the shopping mall, now that's a shitty business model now because nobody wants shopping malls. But <laughs> the visualization, how I'm thinking of it is, ETH is actually a digital nation state in its own right. And I'm going to write a big piece on this with the uh, Kevin Kelly from Delphi Digital is. My view is all the elements, structural elements of an economy are there. We've got a population. We've got um, a trend rate of growth. We've got a yield curve that's not defined by a central bank, but designed at protocol level. Um, then we have the assets that are in that economy. NFTs are assets within the economy. We've got the financial side of it. So that's CFI and DeFi. Um, and the layer twos are probably the, the states within that nation. So you get the choice. Do you want to live in the United States and live in California or do you want to live in Florida? And you get different, you accrue different benefits, but it's actually still under the, the nation states of the United States. So I'm starting to think of it more as nation states and ETH is, and again, when I finalize this article, there's a lot of parallels between ETH and a regular economy, but you know, economies don't grow as fast as ETH has, and it, it doesn't have such a big boom-bust cycle. But yeah, uh, I think the shopping mall war works, but also think of it as a as a country, and people start to understand it. So, uh, and I know you're a big believer in Metcalf's law, as I am too, and there are many other things that can drive the value of a network. But it, it's pretty clear there are kind of three names out there that are kind of managing all the users. And maybe a fourth, and those three names are Ethereum, Polygonmatic, Solana. And the fourth coming in from behind pretty fast is Arbitrum. Uh, but two of those four are layer twos. And this takes me back to the age-old question I've been trying to answer myself since I was looking for the ETH killer. That's how I fell upon Solana, as if there is one, that's it. But the challenge that I had early 2021 was it's modular. No, the ETH is modular and Solana is monolithic. So they're very, very different, the DNA, etc. How do, how do you reckon that in your head across the different architectural types? Or does it really matter? It's all about the users. I don't think it matters. I mean, I don't know what computer you're on. You don't know what computer I'm on. I don't know what version of the software you're running. Right? All of this stuff will get abstracted away. So really, it's going to be all these guys actually sell is block space. Is your block space attractive and are other people using it in ways that helps you out, right? A lot of people use AWS because AWS have a bunch of services on top of it, of the of, of just storing your data. Same with Microsoft. 
So I think it's a, it's a similar thing. I think, you know, once you just abstract all of it away and all of the emotion out of the crypto markets is you need to make your block space attractive by having a good product that functions and is priced well. Um, so I don't really care what types of chains. There's other interesting ones, SUI coming up, obviously, which is the similar beta based on move like Aptos is. There's a whole bunch of these. Um, I don't think it matters. I think for me, I want everything to succeed in the best way that they can. But there's no room. If you look at traditional business models, there's only one, maybe two winners in the well, space. Well, I thought Tolly said something interesting. He was looking at, could Solana be a layer two on an, on ETH? Or could even theoretically ETH be a layer two on Solana? Or Solana be a layer two for Bitcoin. Yeah. And what that got to me, he was having a more intellectual conversation about security and how to create extra layers of security in, in, in case of kind of block failure, stuff like that. But what that looked to me obvious was, well, then you've got interoperability. So then we don't kind of care what chain we're on and we can build anywhere. Because one of the difficult things for a business, if you're Nike, can you make the decision not to build on ETH? Hmm. Because you don't know if anything else is going to survive or there's enough activity on enough wallets, that kind of stuff. So that is a bit of a super massive black hole for ETH. But if you create the interoperability, then anybody can use anything. They can make the choice. Hey, this one's faster and cheaper for me. It's better for my needs because I'm doing ticketing, whatever. And they don't have to make the catastrophic decision of, oh my God, well, nobody can use this for anything else. Yeah. So I, I go back to the path to a billion users. The question is, who gets there first? And like everything else in the world, it's the best, cheapest, fastest solution will get there first. You can't adopt, you can't have a billion users on a blockchain if it's $15 a transaction. That's just not going to fly. So No, but layer twos accomplished that, right? Yeah, so that's they still have their issues with things like finality and stuff like that that holds them back from certain use cases. That's right, but for some use cases, more than adequate. Mm. For others, not adequate, I and mean, that's pretty much true of every blockchain, right? There's huge trade-offs. So, so, and I think that's fine. And I know, I know, you spoke recently as well about some allocations. The way I look at kind of the crypto world and crypto positions is risk and reward. I know Ethereum will outperform Bitcoin. I know Solana probably will outperform Ethereum. But the question is, how much do you allocate? And this is the debate I have in my little head every single day, <laughs> especially when I see yeah, things so how like I've pricing, done this. pricing's out. Of, like one, one, one other number for you to consider is ETH market cap is 40x Solana. And they got the same number of daily active users. There's something wrong with how these things are valued or do people simply not have a clue at to how to appraise a blockchain? So when I've done the work on this and built a Metcalfe's Law model, it's number of active users, fine. But the thing that most people don't understand is what seems to give the best correlation is total value transacted in dollars. And what we find is that Bitcoin is worth more because more is exchanging value. ETH does a lot more transactions, but they're smaller. And the Bitcoin transactions tend to be larger in size because there's a lot more institutions and, and that kind of stuff in the space. So what it's telling you, and I found that all of them seem to be priced accurately according to that, you know, with a chart fit kind of thing. 
Therefore, it's telling you Solana has smaller transactions. Okay, that's fine. You know, it depends what applications get built. And if it's going to be a consumer chain, which is, I think, really where its branding lies really well, then maybe it does that. But then it's going to have a lot more active users because it's a consumer-based product. So you win in different... There's two different ways to win in that game. Um, but I, I like you, think ETH outperforms Bitcoin and Solana outperforms ETH. But I won't prepare to have that... that I've got the ETH bet. I don't really... I don't really have much Bitcoin anymore. Um, and that worked well in this in the bear market. My ETH, you know, maintained its value against Bitcoin. So fine. That's the first leg of that to prove out. The next bit is the bull market. I imagine that if those downward sloping trend lines of Sol versus ETH start breaking and we start to see some breakout new applications on Solana that I will be shuffling my 90-10 or 80-20 or whatever whatever my current weighting is between the two and changing around. Now, I did that once before, which was Bitcoin and ETH. I had virtually no ETH. I was watching the chart pattern, watching the chart pattern, and then I think it was December 2020, I just started switching. And then by the time I got through to like March of 2021, I owned very little Bitcoin. I'd switched 90-10 to 10-90. And it may happen again with Solana. I mean, people mistake me for an ETH maxi. No, I'm currently, I'm trying to be a profit maxi. Yes, I, I, I love the space, but, you know, I'm trying to make money out of a long-term view. I, I try uh, hammer that home. It goes back to the, as you say, the, the monkeys throwing poop at each other. It's, I'm an alpha maxi, so I chase wherever. Like, I, I did something very sacrilegious when Tesla hit, like, 106 or whatever. I swapped Bitcoin into Tesla because I was looking at the upside. I said, over the next year, year and a half, Tesla's going to outperform Bitcoin. And then the horror from the world, he sold Bitcoin, not all, some, it's a tiny piece. Uh, but it, it, it's just funny how, I know the, the, I always try and spend a lot of time understanding the psychology of money and humans' relationship with it. But how, what advice would you give people around their blind faith and getting married to something that sometimes isn't ever going to go anywhere. What would you tell them? I mean, it's really hard. And this came up recently on a Twitter spaces I was on. It's like, here's all of us saying, just hold on, hold on and buy in the down cycles. Yeah. So you hear advice like that it works really well in secular trends, rising assets. But what happens if you chose the wrong thing? That piece of advice is the worst piece of advice you're ever going to get. I thought that was a valid criticism, but I don't yet know how to address it, how to explain that you need things that are in a secular trend or have a chance, because if not, you're going to go bankrupt. Yeah, I just, I just popped up a, a trading view chart, and literally 24 hours ago, ETH was trading at $18.52, and now it's about to hit 21 bucks. So like that type of... Swing is massive when you compare it to other assets. I'm just thinking, well, I have you on the line. I'll see exactly what the market's doing because my computer's a messed up today. But, but you're dead right. So in, in terms of you're in a position where you can flip between assets 10 times a day and incur no tax penalty, correct? Yes, but I also don't. So I don't trade. I found that my edge is my long-term view. And I'm pretty comfortable with it. Um, and it's made me a lot more money over time than my trading ever did. And so I don't trade. 
I will make an asset allocation switch, which will be one switch. I'll be like, oh, I might move 50% of my ETH into salt, theoretically. That will be one switch. I don't, I just don't do anything else because I've found that I've generated more alpha for myself by having a long-term time horizon. Because yeah. if not, you just get caught out at the wrong times and your mental state goes. Like my mental state, going through a whole bear market, which I've been through so many times since I first got in in 2012-13, was like super chill. The only yeah. thing that I got stressed about is I didn't have any more cash to buy. Hmm. I was like, I need to find cash to buy because I had a plan. I knew what was happening. Um, I was comfortable. But if you're trading, you just find so many attack vectors where your mind gets screwed up. And you're like, I need to get out. I need to do this. And I can't get it right. And I'm a moron. And then I'm a genius. That journey of moron to genius. And if you're the shorter term trader you are, the more you feel those emotions, they're not good. I think yeah. it's net negative. That's such an interesting point. Yeah, the, the, uh, I think the bear market, and you still see the PTSD in people. And this is what I warn people about. This is kind of drilling into what you just said. People are so damaged and they buy something and they get back to their realized price like 25K and they sell. I'm going to buy back in at 10,000. And it shoots to 30,000. It's like, whoa, what just happened? Um, <clears throat> what advice would you have? Like, I, I know you're right there. What I, what I try and do and the advice I give people, and now I've heard myself parroted back, is I believe in what's called a huddle bag. It's like, say, 80%. I do everything in Pareto-efficient manner. You don't touch that. You might swap between pristine assets like Tesla, Bitcoin, etc., but that's locked away. And use that as margin to do kind of your 20% playing, trading activities. But what advice would you say to people? Like, we're in exponential times. Uh, you covered at the very beginning, stock market divided by money supply is flat. Real estate is down, but you have leverage. But these are exponential assets, and there's so few of them, and they're so scarce. So what I'm hearing from you is your advice would be, Hold. I'm going to, I need to just find the front cover of my um, July GMI, which was probably the best cover. It was just four words that says, don't fuck this up. <laughs> and then there was a tweet from somebody on Twitter that said, there is a bull market staring you in the face. All you have to do to make life-changing money is buy and wait patiently. Don't fuck this up. Yeah. And that's, and then I put the bell curve of the mid-twit. On the left is the buy-and-hold retail investor. In the middle is, no, you know, inflation, this, recession, blah, blah, blah. And the other side is the monk with the buy-and-hold. So yeah. that, that is my advice, is you buy-and-hold and accumulate into these large cyclical drawdowns and just check whether your overall thesis is right. And the overall thesis is, do we have adoption? It's the same, you know, the same bloody thesis for Tesla as well. It's like for anything, does it have an ongoing adoption? And is that going to continue to increase? If that's the case, forget everything else. It's all noise. So we got your allocations. You may have snuck the cat out of the bag accidentally by saying the 10 to 20 and 80% ETH, which is actually not dissimilar to me. I, I happen to be 80% Bitcoin about 16% ETH and about 4% Sol. But uh, I do anticipate uh, that flipping could happen very quickly for the last two. All right, so uh, let's talk about uh, a couple of other things. I know we, we don't have you forever, unfortunately. 
central bank digital currencies, WF control, etc. Uh, there was a lot of news about Ledger, which rattled, literally hardcore, you know, not your keys, not your coins, cold storage communities all over the world with, you know, some some Bubsy and customer support on Twitter saying, oh, yeah, we can backdoor into your, into your wallet and stuff. That, that sent shockwaves, literally. I was getting questions about wallets for months and months. It's died down, thank goodness. But uh, what did you think of all of that? Do you think there'll come a time, like, you know, getting back to Larry Fink, he said it's a democratizing force, which means he sees the WEF, CBDC world. He got a black eye from being so pro-ESG for a long time. And he said, I'm no longer associating myself with that. How do you see all of this coming around? We know CBDs are coming. We know money printing is going to only accelerate from here. Uh, we know governments need a way to control how the populace plays with money, how they spend it, what they spend it on. There's the only way around it to continue at the money printing rate and be in a position to pay for all the social benefits that are coming down the pike with the aging population, negative birth rates, etc. How do you view this whole CBDC world and politics. There is a magnificent battle that is going on, which is the battle that I've talked about for some time between the parallel system and the old system. Once you see it for that's what it is, the Gensler, the noise, the central bank digital currencies, central bank digital currencies is one way is acceptance that the new system that these bunch of bandits built is better than the old system, right? That's incredible. There's the whole old system saying, yeah, what you guys have built is better than ours. So we want a bit of that. And the battle is the kind of six, five punk, six, five, two, nine battle of who gets control. And we have a chance that the people will get more control that we will never have full control. A, you live in a country and you have laws and all of those things, but will we have more control or less control than the current financial system? And that's the fight we have to have which is why it does matter how many people actually own digital assets in their own right. What we build on these rails is really important. It's not just speculation. It's actually of societal importance because society has become more constricting over time hmm. and more technology means more capture over humans in certain ways that we don't understand. Behavioral economics is a, you know, a big and scary thing and incentive systems perverse or otherwise, will get used at scale. I don't know how to stay out of all of this. It is complicated. And it's one of the reasons I saw this coming after the European crisis when I was living in Spain. I'm like, I need to get out of here or at least have a plan B. And my plan B was to go to a small island in the middle of the Caribbean where I'm just a bit further away than this battle. But this battle is being fought in the US, Europe, the UK, and a whole bunch of other countries. Although interestingly enough, uh, and we talked before we were on uh, camera, India, when you ask an Indian about state control, they don't care. That, it, the freedom side of money and that stuff is not the most important to them. The most important stuff is to make money. Hmm. Um, and the Chinese are the same. So different philosophies have different things and where they are in the economic cycle. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a big battle over all of this. And the other thing is within that battle is not only governments, but it's all the financial players that exist today. And then there's all the big Web2 giants, the technology giants. And we have to fight all of these people. 
Yeah. I actually, speaking of the Indian stock market, I spoke about that on my Saturday's video and how it's going up so well. But also when you balance it with the M2 money supply growth in India, it's always north of 10%. So they're printing like crazy. But is that balanced out by the growth in population too of north of 1.4 billion people, biggest country in the world, growing middle class, they just need more money? That's so I, something. So I, I'm, and you'll hear me referring to this a lot, and I've been showing it on Twitter. I use that bell curve meme again. And I'm like, India, average age of 28, 1.4 billion people. Those average age of 28 will be 38 in 10 years. Still young enough to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> so they're just going to go from being, hey, I've just got my first job. I've come out of university with my 17 PhDs, as Indians do. And then they're going to go into the workplace and start saving and buying. We know what that does. So I just keep it really simple. So yeah, the Indian market will, of course, do well, because demographics is literally the largest driver of everything. So yeah, I, I just keep it as simple as I possibly can. Because a lot of people say, well, the, you know, well, the central bank, you know, they haven't got inflation under control. Nobody with an average age of 28 has low inflation. Because these people are all coming into the labor force, buying their first house and car and getting married and all of that inflationary stuff. So, yeah, I just think it's just one of the simplest, best stories in the world. So, And we now have switching, because this all ties in together. I think you were the first person to say macro is crypto, crypto is macro. Is that fair to say? A hundred percent. And I'm now more convinced of it than I ever have been in the past. All right. So following the kind of everything code, and I, lo I love that framework too, and considering the need for 0% rates going forward, cowbell, how explosive do you expect the bull market to be? We are in a bull market, um, but you know we, we know the Fed has to cut. They're on the verge of paying a trillion dollars in interest, which is like 30, 40% more than the defense budget. And Everything's broken. Deficits are exploding. Uh, I don't know what they're seeing in the job market. I think they need to take into account the fact that in the United States, people there's a game we don't job. know. There's <laughs> got to be a game we don't know is being played yeah. here. Yeah. That's that's my general thought. Is like, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get it so when they cut, the bottom is two percent, hmm. because they know that each cycle needs to cut four hundred basis points or something. Yeah. So therefore, is it two percent? I don't know what the game the game is to be played here. But what I do know from my macro work is I, I can forecast the cycle, probably. Again, there's no certainties in this world. Looks like we're in a bull market. I can see where liquidity is going and where it's likely to go because of interest payments and other issues and demographics. Um, we can map out potentially where assets go. But what you don't know is where the human emotion side is going to be in this. Because if everyone goes all crypto crazy again, it'll do significantly more than people expect. And we'll have a bigger boom bust cycle if it's not. So I, it's very difficult to predict where it actually goes. But what we can say is, look, it's reasonable that Bitcoin from all time highs doubles or triples. That's not asking a lot. That will be the worst bull market in Bitcoin's history. There, 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 but there's an interesting angle that that I see, and what do they say, the most dangerous words in the investing language is this time is different. But it is. Let me explain why. 
we have a decreasing supply hitting the market. We have increasing demand. And there's a record low amount on exchanges available for sale and more hodling than ever before. Everything that you look at that's on chain, it's a perfect storm of supply crunch. I had uh, Jamie from Bloomberg on and he and back in January and he said there will be a Bitcoin supply crunch by the end of 2023. What's your take on that? And could this time be different where there's more than a 3x? Because we know diminishing returns, diminishing... Yeah, I think all of us need to be cautious putting out prices to people. Yeah. You know, so Don't we all have like... our heads what we think <laughs> because yeah. people don't yet know how to fully take risk because this is bringing in new market participants. So how I would look at it, and even with my own mind is, listen, it probably triples from the all time high and currently it's at 30 grand. So, okay, that's a, that's a six X from here. That's, that's pretty good. And the upside is maybe I'm totally wrong and it gets complete, complete panic to the upside because of the issues you, you talk about. We don't know what's going to be happening in the economy in 2025. You know, what, what could be driving prices? So I just think you get the upside for free. Hmm. You can be conservative and it's still huge and you get the upside for free. So when I first wrote, I think I wrote the first ever kind of Bitcoin strategy piece, investment strategy piece and price model. That was 2013. It was at 200 bucks. And I said, I, I worked it out kind of like gold with a, with a um, stock to flow ratio, just kind of simple maths. And I'm like, well, Bitcoin on the same basis will be valued at a million dollars. So I said, okay, I'm just going to discount myself by 90% because this sounds ridiculous. So we'll call it $100,000. And it was trading at $200. So it's still the best risk reward you'll ever find. So at 6x, is it does Bitcoin outperform, underperform Tesla or in line? I don't know. My, I'm not, I actually don't know with that bet. Um, because I'm actually quite yeah. and, and and they are my two biggest positions because you know I tell everybody you know we as using another sorry for stealing all your terms the exponential age um, that's what we're in but it, it, what's comical is nobody or very few people can actually wrap their heads around what that actually means you have people like you you have people like Jeff Booth you guys get it but. Your traditional Wall Street analysts have no clue. So we are in a very unique place where I'm seeing for the first time in my life, you have more smarts on things like Fintwit and retail investors and YouTube analysts than you do at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and all these other places. I know you worked at Goldman back in the day. Um, how, how do you explain the fact that like the only way I can explain that Wall Street is less smart than kind of retail is the fact that they're acting like psyops and they're only pumping their own bags. They're saying, oh, General Motors is going to crush Tesla or whatever else. How, how do you play that out in your head? So, when we started Real Vision back in 2014, the idea was to democratize the very best financial knowledge. Back then, nobody got access to all of the great minds that we have on Real Vision the great research, it was not there. So what would a FinTwit been like back then? The average person will have known much less. Yeah. 
So now this proliferation of long-form podcasts, information, everything else, and then this great debating forum where you can learn and see so much, and the wisdom of crowds beats the individual over time. So I think the crowd is generally smart, not always, there's certainly people who are who are amazing, but generally speaking, if you can filter some of the noise from the crowd, your informational, um, the, the information advantage you get is pretty high and it's been proven, um, you know, hedge funds use Twitter for trading signals, stuff like that. So I think what we've done is ended up democratizing and decentralizing information. And where the information comes together is platforms like Twitter or like Real Vision, where people can then have discussions about stuff. So I, I like it because it's taken out of the hands of the Goldmans of this world and they know they're less relevant. Yeah, they've got one or two good analysts. The rest of them, it's just irrelevant. They're just there to service the investment banking because really the rock stars lie, lie outside. Yeah. Well, I got a couple, couple more questions. I know we're running out of time. You got a few more minutes? Go on, a couple of minutes. I've got to film okay. another whole thing for Real Vision in a sec. So let's do it. Super fast. Uh, one, you said Bitcoin could do a 3x, ETH probably a 5x, and then Solana maybe a 7x. That There are kind of the ratios I'm thinking about in my head. Yeah, and my numbers are much larger, <laughs> is what I'm thinking. So I'm, I'm actually thinking, look, there is a potential. And again, people listening to this, there's a potential, there's a possibility, a dream scenario that Solana does what Bit, what ETH did from the 2018 low, which was a 47x. Yeah. And so Solana low was nine bucks. So, you know, you could do the maths. The numbers are potentially very interesting. You know, that would be 20-something X from here for, for Solana. So ETH will be less than that, much like Ethereum app form Bitcoin. So, yeah, somewhere in that range that you gave, and then just look at the, what ETH did back in 2018 and say, look, that's reasonable for a proven battle-tested protocol that has a lot of activity. Okay. Super fast. This is going to be a quick round because I know you got to go. Uh, I'm going to tap you for all you're worth. Uh, SEC and crypto, you said beautifully in a video, I think last week, same thing I've been saying for a long time. The SEC doesn't matter. U.S. market doesn't matter for crypto. And a lot of people are scared that the SEC, Gary Gensler and co, obviously... They're part of choke point, etc. They can't kill crypto. Agree? No, no. It's like water. Money flows. Yeah. It flows everywhere you where it's be most yeah. accepted and most looked after. Right. So the Chinese banned it three times. India's banned it. Um, we've had Hong Kong ban it and unban it. We've had you know endless right. But it flows. This is a decentralized system of money and value. And no one nation can control it, which is why they're so scared of it, obviously. Yeah. Um, and the US will realize that, as you said at the beginning, you're actually taking away people's freedoms here in a very big um, in a very big opportunity. And the political backlash will be very big. And I think we're already starting to see the traction of that, where people say, listen, this is not right how we're being treated. So I think politics solves it in the end. Um, but... If they continue to do this, other countries will just take the mantle. Okay. Uh, penultimate question. Uh, July and August, historically very quiet. I call it the summer doldrums. Not a lot of buyers, volumes low, prices fall. Could there be some buying opportunities for people that didn't get on the train earlier in the year? Yeah, I tend to think my framework has actually been that 
July might be all right. Then August is that, you know, everyone's on holiday. Nobody cares. Yeah. But we're starting to see the commercial, um, the um, smaller banks, the KRE, roll over again. Got to keep your eye on that because if it does, then it increases the chance of more cowbell because if the banks need bailing out. It's, so going, I, to, it's going to happen. I, I, that's right. So my general feel it, feeling is end of August, September starts getting interesting. Of sure, we'll have a larger correction at some point. I don't think it's going to be 2019 this time around. Um, I think it might it might be it might be a stronger market, but who knows? So yeah, any sell offs, any sideways, good time to just add stuff if you're not fully loaded. Because a lot of people have PTSD, and a lot of people are still on the sidelines, and they you get yourself. This is we talked about before. You get yourself in mental anguish because you've now traded and you've got out of the market, and you want to be in the market because your whole body wants you to be in the market for the long term, but you think you've been smart by getting out and then you miss the next 30%. Mm. You know, it's like, just be careful not to mess up your mind. We're looking at all these crypto bulls on Twitter, like I was going down to 10,000. Yeah. Why? Because they can't bear the fact that they got out and now they're stuck in a position <laughs> now they're hoping. <laughs> and they want to fill their bags for lower price. Exactly. Awesome. Final question for you, Cancer and Raul Paul. Thank you so much. You've got 2,500 people watching here live. And Fantastic. they all appreciate. Don't forget the Real Vision links are down below. Uh, there's all sorts of. Oh, next week actually, I just remembered. Next week, um, there is. I think it's we, we've got a whole crypto gathering, which is I'm laying out my entire crypto thesis. I've got to record that now, which is why I need to go. Um, then we brought on the best technical analysts. We've got hedge fund managers. We've got everybody to discuss different parts over the course of a week. So I think it's realvision.com forward slash gathering. It's free. Knock, yeah. knock your socks off. There's just a lot there. Rock, rock up a Raul's house. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. No. exactly. He's got dogs. Don't do that. Uh, fi final question. Prepper plans. We see a lot of people now beginning to walk with their feet, get out of Dodge, move to Dubai, move to El Salvador. Where would you believe the best place to be would go or where would it go? Where are the best place to live maybe in the next five, ten years when you want to get out of the Western world if it becomes crazy? I mean, that's not an easy question to answer. Because uh, there's a huge amount of trade-offs. Well, it's all did. well and good. Oh, yeah, did. just go. Yeah. I did. I moved to the Cayman Islands um, by accident. Part of it was the plan B. Is like, listen, if I think there's going to be more civil unrest, higher taxations around the world, and I think we've got this debt cycle and this demographic cycle, and I don't like it. I want somewhere that I can feel a little bit more removed from the situation. That's why I chose it. Um, it depends what age you are. You know. Lands of opportunities would be Mumbai. It yeah. would be probably the Middle East, probably Dubai, uh, probably Saudi, probably Abu Dhabi. I think they're going to be interesting because they're around India, they're around these young populations, there's a lot going on, and they're kind of having a technological revolution. But where else do you live? Yeah, I remember looking at waterfront property in Mumbai a couple of years back. I couldn't believe the prices. <laughs> Millions, like way more than Manhattan. Yeah, Unbiable. It's unbiable. Yeah, I don't exactly. know how. You know, it's crazy. So yeah. yeah, it's 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 not an easy choice to think of that. And if anybody watching this is an American, it's even harder. Yeah. Because you know, the long arm of the United States tax system and political system is is immense versus other states. Well, thank you so much again for your support. We do have to reconnect again. I have some other things to show you. Next time we have more time, you'll find them very interesting. But uh, we, we spent 
the whole of the bear market building stuff, including a thing called the Crypto Compendium, analyze the top 500 cryptos across 69 different parameters. I think it'd be handy for your community to have in your back pocket as well as we go forward. And a whole yeah, bunch of- Send me an email and, and we'll chat about yeah. it. Awesome. Thank you so much again. Enjoy the next video. Thank you for all you do as well for the world and the community. We're all very grateful and we love you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. See you Thank later. You. Really enjoyed it as ever. Okay. Take care. Till soon. Bye. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.